1: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television
0: today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
1: me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues... Pop culture and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Generally, the actors I idolize are the greats of the past. I like some younger ones, I respect them. They're just not on my Mount Rushmore like Kirk Douglas or Barbara Stanwyck. One of the few current actors who tempts me to make an exception is Edward Norton. He melts into his roles so totally it can be hard to recognize him from one film to the next... After playing a sociopathic murderer in Primal Fear, he moved to the cheerful, singing boyfriend in Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You. And from there, a long list of great works by great directors, including American History X, Fight Club, and Spike Lee's 25th Hour. But movie making has changed over his quarter century as a leading man. Fight Club was shot over 130 days, That just doesn't happen anymore. The money's not there, and the studios don't have the patience. Norton has tried his hand at directing twice, once on either side of that divide. He's just releasing his adaptation of the Jonathan Lethem novel Motherless Brooklyn. I'm in that one, and it's out November 1st. His other directing foray was in 2000, with a romantic comedy, Keeping
4: the Faith. I actually had more money and more time to make Keeping the Faith a rabbi-priest joke turned into a romantic comedy than I did to make Motherless Brooklyn, which is a big, epic New York... Sweeping period sweeping piece. period piece of the 50s done at scale with, you know, I think we ended up with 680-something effect shots in the film. I could have never made this film in the constraints of budget and time that we had back then because I could barely pull off keeping the faith with more. And that was partly a function of, in the years since, you know, when we made The 25th Hour with Spike, um, which I think is one of his better films, um, which is saying a lot, he made that film in 26 days. Mm. And it's it's a really cinematically robust film shot in New York, going through the training camp of seeing how he did that, seeing how Wes Anderson does his on fractional budgets and schedules in doing Birdman in 29 days. What do they have in common? Unbelievable planning. Just like planning at a level, rehearsal, um, engagement with actors in a way that necessitates less hand-holding and kind of debating on the day. Spike and Wes, they know what they want to do. They give themselves outs and things like that. They don't edit the film in the way they shoot it, but they are not making it up on the day. Um, they have put a lot of thought into it, and, and they drive the proceedings along in a very uh, determined way. And when you see really good people pull that off, if you take mental notes, you're like, wow, this can be done. This can be done in a different way. It can be done without compromise, and you can pull this off. I never, ever could have made this film without working with Spike West, Alejandro, and others. Did you know when you made Keeping the Faith, had you said to yourself over the past several years that you would do it again? Did you know you'd do it again? I already had this one rattling around in my head. Not unlike my character in this, my character, Lionel says, let's just say an unfinished puzzle makes my head hurt worse than most people, I, that's as close to a a line about myself as I've ever written. I, I I'm also probably obstinate and um, don't like to be uh, denied. But I, but but some of it is just the that idea that he discusses in the film about having glass in the brain. I, if I get a thing in my head, it just I I really I suffer a little bit from not achieving the satisfaction of ultimately like putting the story together and getting it told so I can get it out of my my brain loop you know part of my fascination with this piece was compulsion the idea that as Lionel says you're doing something for certain reasons and at some point you even forget what the original reasons were you're not even sure why you're still pressing on a thing long
3: after everyone's kind of <laughs> glaring at you
4: like yeah. isn't it time man to let that to bury yeah. that? yeah I always it, it's funny, isn't it too? Because there's things that are much more important in the world, and and you can say to yourself like, why am I why am I um applying so much of my time in life to telling a a story? But at the same time, we're living in an age where a lot of things are encouraging people to be passive, you know. So pushing back against anything that's just a good feeling. Mm. Your dad. Was a federal prosecutor? Yeah, at one, at, Carter, one at one point, he, yeah, he, was, he was a U.S. attorney. He was a U.S. attorney. In your mom, most of my life taught high school English in a public school.
3: And your and your mom's dad was this very successful uh, real estate developer.
4: Yeah, his name was Jim Rouse. He was, um, he was very celebrated. Uh, it was he was on, it was on the cover of the New York Times when he died, which amazed me. And he he was on the cover of Time magazine. Like, well, you know, when, when was right. the last time? For positive reasons, right. a real developer. estate developer was on the cover of Time. He, um, he was considered, uh, he was considered one of the great visionaries of progressive humanistic ideas about cities. He achieved these very, very notable sort of downtown revitalization projects, like the Baltimore Inner Harbor sure. or Faneuil Hall in Boston. Right. Place parts of the cities that had been written off, abandoned, and he saw vitality in them, and was convinced that you could bring life back into cities, make cities the marketplace of ideas, culture, all of it. Downtown. And, yeah, and in many ways, he, you know, he he really um, decried, he was one of the first people to talk about sprawl, that highways were going to create low-density development and that this was going to be, people were going to flee the cities and we were going to get kind of non-communities, we were going to get these sort of like limitless um you know, and and that the old world town was going to disappear in a way, and he was right. He proved these things he talked about in the fifties turned very true in the sixties and seventies, and so people really looked at him as a a guru. But he um then he he developed kind of the first planned city in America, which was Columbia, Maryland, um, between Baltimore and Washington. Mm-hmm. It was very progressive, um, you know, socioeconomically, ethnically diverse, lots of open space. It was it was. Kind of this utopian idea of of what American communities could look like.
3: But what what I want to get to is, I mean, you, you know,
4: you go to Yale and you go and you you switch from astronomy. So I studied history. I thought I wanted to study physics. I, I didn't have the math for it mm-hmm. at all. Like learned that very quickly, which was one of those good humbling moments. Realized I was like better at writing. You switch to Asian history. You you, you live in Japan
3: and uh, you did you work for your grandfather's company in japan?
4: Yeah, I did. He he was consulting to uh, to places that were trying to replicate what he had done with inner harbors and stuff. I I um I wanted to live and work abroad like in the foreign service or like the intelligence agencies used to recruit at Yale and I I was I was pretty enamored of like the idea of doing something something and living overseas. But I had the bug. I kind of had the theater bug. And I kind of gave myself. I was like, "I'm going to move to New York," and I couldn't really admit to myself I, w- I wanted to do that. You know, there's could that, I? Yeah, actually. I could. You're like doing this. You don't. There's something like it was an apology inside everything an I did. Apo- at the me too. Me too. I and and in and in some ways, it was because my grandfather, by then, had devoted all, his entire focus was on affordable housing development, and he had built one of the great organizations in America, a nonprofit organization, figuring out how to get. Complicated finance structures to get money into affordable housing development, and he was in. They were in New York, redeveloping thousands of city-owned abandoned buildings across the late '80s and '90s. And I was working for him in New York. I literally went down when I was like 21. I went down, sat on the porch with my grandfather, and sort of apologized to him because he paid for me to go to college. Yeah. And I thought, how do I tell him? I, him down. How do I tell him I want to be an actor? You know, and he and he was the greatest. He he was he was a very eccentric. Eclectic guy. He was orphaned when he was a kid. He he never he never wore suits. He wore like Madras jackets and fishing hats. He was a a, a genuine kind of original. Yeah, he really was. And he and I was shocked. He said to me, he he said, don't don't. He said, don't don't chase money. He said, whatever you do, just don't chase money. Just he said, just do whatever do what you love doing, what you have a passion for, and in good time, you'll figure out how you can be of service through it you know he said you can be of service in anything and he loved the arts he loved he helped create center stage in at baltimore by supporting it in the early years he really believed in the arts so he kind of gave me this permission i was still right. working for he him understood. in new york but then i started moonlighting in the theater and i felt like um i was allowed but but, but,
3: but what i want to get to i mean i don't want to exaggerate this but but it's like You know, you grow up, you go to Yale, and uh, you come from a very, very uh, stable family and a lot of successful people there. And my point is that in your acting, especially, like, bookending now and Primal Fear years ago, where you really, really start to take off in the movie business,
4: are two damaged people. Yeah. Uh, It's hard to say. You know, it's a funny thing because I'm not drawn to damage, um, but I— I am drawn to sort of the duality, like the idea of the layer you see and the layer you don't see. And sometimes they're paradoxical, you know. I think it's not by chance that like the Greek drama symbol is the two masks, the comedy and the drama masks, right? Because everybody's operating on these multiple... Level there's these levels in ourselves and sometimes they coexist and they're not necessarily antagonistic to each other but they really are the yin to the yang right and I think that when you find um, when you find a character that the the yin and the yang is going on like really clearly at the same time in them that's interesting and sometimes it's I don't want to call it cheap but sometimes it's like the kind of uh, primal fear like a person who's faking a thing. That's sort of juicy. That's like the pulpy version of it, and it was a lot of fun, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Especially when no one knows who you are, so you can actually surprise a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes if it's like American History X, that's not really a damaged person per se, but it's a person with this huge complexity going on. It it is like a fellow or something. He's a real leader. He's a lover of his family. He's got a real intellect. His potential is limitless. And he totally destroys himself with the one dark thing, with this this rage, right? He's got rage, and the rage just, just d- dismantles everything else, right? And those paradoxes are sometimes really compelling. Um, Playing I, those parts,
3: I find, I mean, I watch you in this film, and I'm very drawn to the kind of acuity of that. Like, I need to believe underneath that there's a sensitive person. Yeah. You know, you're not just it's not just externalized.
4: No, no. I think um but you did a great job. The, I'm not just saying that because I'm in the no, film. No, thank you. And and uh, and I'm not just saying this because you're in the film and great in the film, but I think um it's a very it's a very interesting thing to me, like this idea of like the counterpoint in people, the capacities in people, and yeah, Lionel in this has Tourette's, but you it's a it's absolutely stolen from the book. Over black at the top of the film, you hear his inner voice, right? Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, it's the trick of going, you're going to know me like a friend. I'm going to let you write in on the inside so that you can see the sensitive, smart person of depth of feeling of loneliness, of longing, you're going to have immediate empathy because you're going to go, I like everything about the way this guy talks, the way he tells his own story, and then I'm going to let you in on the fact that I've got a really messed up condition that makes life very difficult, Mm. very funny, etc. And that's a great dramatic trick because you're not 40 seconds in and you go, I'm on this guy's side right? And that's 100% credit to Jonathan Lethem, who wrote Mm -hmm. the novel. That's how the novel works on page one. and, And speaking of which, you walked around with the novel for how long? I read the book, loved it, sort of got the rights to it, knew I couldn't work on it for a long time, and then got into this idea of taking this great character study of the book and grafting it into this kind of bigger idea, when I say bigger, I mean just that the plot of the novel is small and Byzantine. And I said to Jonathan, hey, what if we let Lionel, this great emotional relationship you create with the character, what if we let that be a vehicle into looking at something a little more cinematically grand, like the dark history of New York in the 50s. And he's he's a born and raised Brooklynite. He knew the heart of his novel was the character, and he loved the transposition—the idea of yeah, loved it. No he, resistance whatsoever. No, he's a real cinephile. He got it. Yeah, he got it, and and also, we talked about how you know Chandler wrote multiple Marlowe detective stories, and it was like let's take the great emotional um, connection you create in this character, and let's let's send him into his next mystery. Right, he he loved that idea, and um, thank God Jonathan's not only a secure as an artist, but he also he understands that in going to film, you're going into another medium. You need something different. It, it's, right? it's like
3: I, I would do a part in a film I'll never forget. We do the movie Pearl Harbor, and uh, a Do Little. Of the famous aviator, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Doolittle. Doolittle. I play him in the film, and uh, we're there shooting in L.A. one day, and members of his family are there, like his granddaughter, and they're involved in some foundation or something that keeps the flame alive of the the, the, the Doolittle um, memory. And I forget what the organization was, but uh, this is back in 2000. We shoot this movie. Big sunny day where they are shooting at. Uh, I forget where we were. And I walk up to them and I go, so how, how, how's it going? You're enjoying watching the movie? And she goes, yes, but uh, granddad would never do that. He would never talk to people that way, the way you're doing that. And I, and I and was on the tip of my tongue, I want to go, and this is true of men who had to be built a certain way to fit into the cockpits of those planes. Right. And keep, they were all little bantams. And I wanted to say, you know, if we really were going after the whole granddad thing, Bob Balaban <laughs> would be playing your granddad right now, not me. I'm about, you know, 60 pounds yeah. heavier than your granddad, and at least. So now I don't want to meet the people I don't want to know the people. I'm going to go in there. Just in other words, the, my point is, is that when you said about Lethem in the book, well, I'll say to someone the character in the film represents an idea in the film. We're That's not right. telling some story
4: about them. No, I felt that way about your character. Some people have said to me, "Well, clearly it's based on Robert Moses," and I. You don't want to contend with that, and because yes, it's infused with Robert Moses, but it is also there's a reason I didn't. Pretend that these made-up characters of Motherless Brooklyn were interacting with real historical figures, because then you end up ask answering all these ridiculous questions about. You're. It's like, well, wait, did Robert Moses really do that? Is that really true? Did this and that really happen? You go, you know, this is this is why the wisdom, to me, in you could go back, Citizen Kane is about it's Charles Foster Kane. It's not William Randolph Hearst. And yes, it is. It, the essence of it is distilled, but as you know when you read about that, they they infused quite a few details in that story from other people's lives as well to create an essential American character, right? And Robert Penn Warren's great book, uh, All the King's Men, he, it's about Huey Long, but it's not about Huey Long. It's a made-up story. An That's idea. why he made it Willie platform. And to, to me, um, without revealing where we know this film goes in the end— There's a huge amount that happens in this movie that has nothing to do whatsoever with anything that happened in Robert Moses' life on a plotting level, on a psychosexual level, all kinds of stuff. So there's distillations of the type of person he was. There's also a weave of everything from Strom Thurmond and other—you know, there's people that had details of their lives that inspired me to kind of go, I want to distill this into the essence— of a type of person that we as Americans have to really think about how much of them we're willing to tolerate. And when he saw the movie, what kind of reaction did you get? He, he, that, that was one of my most nervous days. Right, of course. Uh, You know, there was like the day I when you showed up on set and I'm like, will he know his lines? No, I'm kidding. I did the best uh, I can with what I have. Showing it to Lethem, I was nervous. And, and he had it go. He was, it was great. He was very, very emotional about it. It was very gratifying. Um, for him, I think it was... You know, it's like you've you've done a thing, and then the thing has refracted and become a whole other thing, and it, I think he was artistically really thrilled. When you had the
3: book, it. over the arc of the time you had the book, was there a moment you threw in the towel and said, I don't think I'm going to do it?
4: I had a, I had a couple of moments of feeling like I was Don Quixote and tilting at windmills, and you know well, because we have kids who are the same age and stuff. There's a, you get into this chapter of your life, and you just say, how much am I willing to bend... Our lives around yeah. a mirage, right? right like am I going to keep us on the camels going toward the mirage? are we going to are we going to am I going to not do other work? Am I going to like say no, we can't take that trip because there's a possibility that this might come together you know it it starts to get into a real like life priority well, as, as my
3: friend said when passion right. crosses over into neurosis. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, or ego, or, yeah. or. but I, I think, you know, Joe, I mean, I really think, and uh, I'm not flipping around on you, but you, you've said to me, I'm doing this thing on Saturday nights as if it can't coexist with the you that we all came up on. Uh, I saw you in Streetcar doing on Broadway. drama, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, Glengarry, Glenn, Ross, these things that became, for us, really iconic m- moments of, of what I'd call like the, you know, dark um, way you think Miami blues, which I was always a big fan of. But um, to to me, this notion that just because you're functioning in a certain gear, let's call it the the smiley half of the Greek mask, that the other thing doesn't coexist and that it's not more interesting because it coexists. That's the thing is to me it's like it's not even that they cancel each other out. It's that they become more interesting when they're both there right cuz that's more true there's a lot of dark stuff going on under a lot of people's smiley narratives right to me one of your most interesting sessions in here was the one you put up after it all broke the schneiderman yeah i guess you did and Eric. i thought the way yeah, the way you led that in with hey we've we've had these conversations with someone we've had a conversation in a gear that is we're connecting with A conscious, humanist, progressive. He was a a hero of mine. Yeah. And, um, and then there's this thing going on unseen by almost anybody, right? That's so dark. And you just constantly forced, I think, to grasp this idea of there's a narrative in American life and in our lives individually. And then there's the shadow narrative, this thing that's going on underneath it. And it's very, very rare that we find ways into having honest conversations about how we integrate those two things, right? Because that's that's like the argument. It's the argument inside ourselves, privately. You think about anyone we know who we know has a measure of quality, an admirable quality as a human being, and he's doing stuff that is uh, e- either you know detestable, unforgivable, whatever. We know that person's having an argument inside themselves, right? We're having that argument as a country. Yes. We're, we're having to say to ourselves, hey, we have to be able to hold the ideal. We have to be able to still take pride in our engagement with the ideal. But we absolutely have to confront the, the shadow narrative. We have to be honest about what we are doing that's antagonistic to what we're saying. That was movie star,
3: director, producer, Edward Norton. Another great actor whose career spans the then and now of old school movies and streaming television is Michael Douglas.
1: You know, if I get one more drunken guy from the street, hey man,
3: read this good, you're the man, you're why I got into this business and everything, I go, hey, you know, That's I, what I was a villain. The rest of my interview with Michael Douglas is in our archive at heresthething.org. Ed Norton on his favorite directors coming up next.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Reality. Podcast.
0: Rappaport's reality—the reality, the reality a of us—we're figuring bit.
1: out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, <laughs> it, it, would been, it would have been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's
0: reality with me, Kibi Rappaport, and me,
1: Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Media. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever.
4: Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. To keep up with the next part of the show, here's what you need to know about some of Edward Norton's movies. Fight Club was directed by David Fincher. American History X was directed by Tony Kaye, who took out full-page ads in Variety, complaining he'd been knifed in the back after the studio gave Norton final cut on the film. And The People vs. Larry Flint was directed by one of Norton's heroes, the late Milos Forman, born in communist Czechoslovakia.
4: You know, he came out from behind the Iron Curtain and landed in America and then made these definitive films about individual spirit pushing back against depression, right? Cuckoo's Nest and Ragtime and Amadeus. And he just made, like, film after film after film that, you know, they set the bar very high. They were like, wow, you can can take things that no one would call a traditional commercial story and make these great pieces of art out of them. And the thing was, I came to him having made very few films and um, I still kind of considered myself more of a, you know, my my life had been in theater. The funny thing is the first two films I did, we did kind of do them in a way where we made the scenes work in the room, right? They they worked in the room and Woody Woody Allen shoots a lot of single takes. Mm -hmm. So it has to, it works as one. I got on there with Milos and realized that, he would shoot in this very open-ended, improvisational way. He would let things change and shift, and then he wouldn't cover it from the other side. And I started to get this anxiety. Like, he would say, great, you know, let's move. And I would say, but nothing happened. Like, we never we never got anything. It didn't work. The scene was never played. And he would kind of look at me like, what do you think this is? This is, you know, he said, this is not, we're not doing play. He goes, I am... He said to me one time, he goes, I am a man with a pickaxe and there is a cliff and I must take the clay from the cliff. I'm not making sculpture. I make sculpture later, you know. And I I, I I, was thinking I might be on the first Milos Forman film where he has lost the plot completely. I'm going to be in the first really bad Mil- okay. Milos Forman film because I would see him move on from things. I could not for the life of me think how he was finished and i happened to have free time and he let me in on the editing process just not to be just to literally i would bring him i would bring him coffee i'm not kidding just to watch and i began to realize that he was his his he was a master of casting and in, and one of the greatest editors ever he he would take things that had never happened and create he would create scenes out of raw material that had never occurred and I, it was this enormous awakening to the plasticity of film. I realized that when you're an actor, you're just giving a director raw material to work with, and you have to, hopefully, you trust them in a devotional way because you are surrendering, you're surrendering clay to them. And um, I remember Mike Nichols saying the reason he loved Jeremy Irons was that if he had a bad idea... He knew that Jeremy Irons would give it the full force of his talent so that he could get off the bad idea because he would say to himself, Jeremy gives me everything, and if he can't make it work, then I know it's a bad idea, right? And th- I, that was that was very profound because I think obviously we all get into situations where maybe there isn't trust, and so we defend, we protect, we resist. right? We shut down. Yeah, we shut down. But in that happy circumstance when you're with, When you're with, in a trusting relationship, you serve. You really do just serve. And if the guy says, you know, when we were doing Birdman, Inuridu Ridu would sometimes come in and go, guys, 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 it's got to be, you know, this, it's too white. It has to be black, you know, and we would do black for a while. And then he would come back and he would say, no, guys, what are you doing? It's all black. I was telling you, it has to be white. (laughs) When I said black, what uh, I meant was the other, you know, and you realize he's having a conversation with himself not with not with you and and that what you ought to do is serve the debate he's having with himself and give him whatever he needs. It's kind of a happy place to be when it's going like that, right? but uh Fincher, well, he's more talented across more divisions of filmmaking than anyone a hundred other people. yeah he's he he's as great a cinematographer as any cinematographer. He's a great editor. He's annoyingly great with a line reading. You know what I mean? He's funny and sometimes you have one of those moments like it was sort of the like, hey, you know, you're you're feeling each other out. And at some point on that movie, I was like, I was running in wingtips and underwear. And, and I was, uh, maybe I was, I was probably leaning into the, to the farce of it a little bit too much, maybe. Anyway, he comes over and he just goes, a little less Jerry, a little more Dean. <laughs>
3: right, right, right. That's a great line.
4: And that was, yeah. uh, and I instantly, I was like, that's all we have to say the rest of this movie. That's the key to the whole movie. Yeah. I want to say this about Fincher because right. it had a big impact on making Motherless Brooklyn. There are times when being a director requires a certain amount of almost sociopathic lack of empathy for other people's stresses. There are many demands. Money's going out the door. Time is running down. Yeah. And you feel stress in other people. You, there's no way that won't happen. And one of the things I learned with not a shred of, of sarcasm in this about was that Fincher was amazing at facing down the stresses of others in defense of the aesthetic value that he or him I need. knows. And there were many, many times, even within this massive 130-day shoot— where Fincher, you know, famously he does a lot of takes. Early on, I decided I already know this about him. Whatever it is that he's chasing, I have seen the result in his films. They have a hypnotic visual elegance that I have not seen equaled. And so whatever he takes, if he needs 35, I have to find the way to stay in gear for 35, right? Right. But I would say one of the things I observed watching him, and nobody is him, but you do realize that when he says, we're not done because a move of the camera where it bumps in the middle, that everyone else says, that doesn't matter. He knows it matters. And there are times when you have to say to everyone else who thinks you're done, we're not done. You have to see the portrait of what a person looks like who's standing firm within reason you know what i mean
3: so um uh, tony k now i only asked I me mean, obviously that was a contentious thing everybody talks about how that was a tough set and everything but did he help you as an actor at all? no
4: but see here this is this is interesting and i don't want to sideline on it too much but i think you know you kind of hinted at it but we're living in this age where clickbait journalism likes to create headlines and before it was even clickbait Entertainment press was doing their version of it. People like to manufacture antagonism because it sounds like a good story whether or not it, in fact, existed. So the very fact that even down the chain of it all, what's come to your head is that it was a tough set, right? That's what you just said. It, that, that's just... There's not a yes, shred false. of truth in it. Well, not a shred perfect. of truth. We, were, we worked it synergistically. He Tony is a great photographer. He lit and shot and operated the film himself. And he had a great gift for a visual sensibility and what I would call a very pure meter for just a kind of a gutsy, visceral thing. He never professed to a shred of experience with or, or even, I don't want to say interest in, he did not want to control narrative, right? He, Dave, my friend David McKenna and then with me, we had worked on that script for a long time. And he seeded that to us. He, he was like, you guys are good at this. I know what to do with it, blah, blah, blah. And we worked hand in glove together through a very vital, very guerrilla kind of a shoot. Um, there was many, many, many times throughout where— Great we, film. Yeah, we had truly lovely moments together. I remember Tony, he's very emotive, and one time he—, he he cried and hugged me and said, uh, "You know, I've I've never felt so supported. I've never had a, a collaborative experience like this." And and I I felt the same. I thought he was a very intuitive. Things, what went on turned into this thing as if it was about me and him. He got into, I would call it a fear of release. Uh, he 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 was very. He cared a lot, and mm-hmm. he had a really difficult time finishing things. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing up that, yeah. in spite of what people had said, yes. you can tell. No, that's why you, I'm saying you, it. I you, I you want, can't make a film like that and not have no, no, some no, battery with it. The and, I it and I want And I, I know for a fact he's told people he's he's very proud of it. In the end, I, I um, it's a great film. I just think people, I think people, they they want to distill some sort of a negativity in into situations that are complex. And I think. You know this, too. I feel you, brother. I the, feel you. You know this. But the funny thing is, is what's strange about it to me is work. Work on things done with passion is going to produce people contending with each other, right? Ideas are going are gonna to bump up against each other and burnish each other. They're going to test each other, and they will refine the thing. People get through those experiences together— and generally shake hands and thank each other for the work. It's not about you. It's not about the ego. It's not about the thing. It's like this is how we do the thing that makes it good. And m- most people come out the ba- most people who know what they're doing come out the backside of that and celebrate that in each other, and then other people turn it into some BS argument.
3: Well, let me let me say two, two more things. One is that, um, you know, one of the—I tell young actors, I say, one of the worst traps you can fall in is that time goes by, and you work with anemic directors, and you work with directors who don't offer you much in film and television, and you become, as we must, self-directing. That n- Not that you've steeled yourself against collaborating with a good director. You forgot how. You've forgotten how to do it. Mm. So you come, and the worst thing that can happen to you is you have a good director who wants to work with you and shape you.
4: And then you're tight. And, 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 you, and, you, yeah. let, and you don't let him in. You don't know how to let him in. Right. No, I, I think that's very true. The The opposite is if there's a situation you can smell now through experience is going to lead to situations where it, then stay away from it. You know what I mean? Then then say no. Don't, don't get sucked. In. And also build your own tribe. You know, that's to me the... A big part of the appeal of directing is honestly like – I don't know if you feel this, but you had 30 Rock, which to me is like that's that repertory – it's like having your own repertory company, right? It's something very special. I I think all actors in some part of themselves want that. They want – it's that dream of being part of a troupe. Right, people. You know, it's like in Wes's in Rushmore, right, right, right. the Max Fisher players. We all want to be in the Max Fisher players. You know what I mean? You and, are in the Max Fisher player. And when and by the way, that's why a lot of us will show up and do small parts when it's our turn to have a small part or a bigger part. It, it doesn't matter because you're in you're in the troop, and it's a wonderful place to be. Like it really is. I've often felt like. You know, you look at the Cohens or, or or people who have these long term alliances. I, sometimes I always thought, like, I'd like the pleasure of that. But one of the things about directing is you you get to create your troupe. Like people talk about Orson Welles, they forget the guy was a kid. He was 25 years old mm. when he made that film. And what did he do? He took all of the Mercury Theater players from his RKO radio days and his WP, and he pulled them into Put him the, in the film. <laughs> Agnes Moorehead all these people you never heard of and they're amazing right and for me motherless brooklyn i would say honestly one of the greatest joys of it was i looked at my roster of new york theater actors that i've known in many cases for 20 years 25 years done plays at the 29th street rep with done plays and said i know that guy's great i know she's great I know Alex, great. Willem's great. These are my these are my people that I've already got shorthand with, and and I'm going to pull them together, and make a effing ensemble of the actors I get on with and love. And it was pure pleasure for me, even among the stresses. Who's the person on
3: the set, off the set, anywhere in the whole configuration, who's helping you? Protect your performance. I directed a film once. I hated the experience, and the person that was most underserved acting wise was now, it Was me. How did you prevent against that? Who was uh, your voice? I, had, I, had a,
4: I mean, most my partner Bill Migliori, who he and I met as he actors. You in that way? We met as actors, and he's a terrific actor. He's my producer on this. On and this he film. helped you he, keep an eye on that. Absolutely. Like he's just a trusted. You know, you glance over a little bit of a nod, a little bit of a shake of the head. Like I'm not One really more. sure. Yeah. Like. You know, or that that there's that. I trusted Dick Dick Pope, my my great cinematographer. So you have or, some eyes. You on. know, yeah. There's he, he things, and honestly, uh, I mentioned there's a guy, the guy who plays the mayor, who you uh, you know um, steamroll right at the beginning of the film. Uh, Peter Lewis is a actor I worked with when I was 24 in in New York on the stage, and he's a terrific actor, and he's a teacher. He's an he's an acting teacher, and I did I rehearsed my part with him. Doing the scenes with you, doing the scenes with Willem, just to give myself some time with someone that I, who I like their instincts, I like their meter to kind of uh, get my own rhythm, you know, going on it and stuff like that. But uh, there's dimensions of directing a thing that you're in that are that are not great for the best of the experience between actors because you're ruining it on some level. On the other hand though, when you have the type of people I had, what I loved about it was I love that feeling of like a, of a company like it's it's what when we all read about Wells and his guys. The fantasy is that we're we're all in it together, you know, and on this film, God bless every actor in it. Everyone did it for me for no money, because they believed in the piece, believed in me.
3: I told you, I would have done it for a lot less yes, money. You're, you're
4: the only person I've ever <laughs> known who said, pay me less. There's something when you when you can feel the weight of people's conviction. That's what I was going for. You did a great job. It was a completely thrilling and fulfilling experience.
3: Great actor, now great director, Edward Norton. There were a lot of movie titles and directors' names coming at you fast in this episode. If you'd like a list of the films Edward Norton and I discussed, text THING to 70101. That's THING to 70101. Motherless Brooklyn is out November 1st. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
1: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on
0: television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport, and
1: me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast. But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through.
2: In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die
5: in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.